Welcome to the Commentary Magazine Daily Podcast. Today is Friday, December 24th, 2021. According to NORAD, Santa is on his way from the North Pole. Uh, this, I think, is one of my favorite actual, like, remaining Christmas things or adaptations of Christmas to the, you know, to, to the 21st century is the NORAD Twitter tracker thing is just, it's, it's adorable. And it's, 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 it's really, really sweet, even though I don't celebrate Christmas, but um, others on this podcast do. So Merry Christmas to senior writer, Christine Rosen. Hi, Christine. Hi, John. Associate editor, Noah Rothman. Hi, Noah. Hi, John. And, 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 Sometime, sometime in childhood at Christmas tree, Jew, Abe, Abe Greenwald. Hi, John. Uh, that's fair, right? You were sort of a. Yeah, yeah. You did uh, everything because any any occasion to give people presents, that was like your family's. That was my family's thing. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but as an adult, no, I don't I don't celebrate Christmas. Yeah, but. I'm a great fan of I all the trappings and all the love colors Christmas. and sounds and movies and all the rest of it. Uh, I wrote a piece for American Consequences, an online magazine about the invention of Christmas, Dickens' invention of Christmas and everything, and how um, people who uh, uh, are not Christian don't understand the unalloyed joy that you can take in Christmas as somebody who doesn't celebrate Christmas, because whatever fraughtness you have about Christmas and everybody seems to, you know, it's like, it's wonderful, but there's family tension or, you know, kids are disappointed in their presence or something happens or the, you know, have to do the lights and unstring the light, all that, all that stuff that, that, that is fraughtness. We have none of. So all we have is the music and the movies and we get to walk around looking at the beautiful lights you put on your houses and we get to eat Chinese food on Christmas Day and go to the movies. And so um, I have just deeply uncomplicated feelings about American Christmas that do not involve religion or family or anything that might be, you know, either deep or complicated or emotionally fraught. So uh no you're doing a lot of cooking right yeah well so we just moved to a, a bigger house so and which the previous owners had like a holiday had holiday notoriety for lack of a better word like they they just did big holiday things and we were informed when we moved here that we had big shoes to fill so yeah you gotta decorate the house you gotta put christmas doodads all over the place you gotta get the big tree you got to buy $600,000 worth of presents. <laughs> and then you got to cook dinner for all the family because we host, we host Christmas now, because if we didn't host Christmas, the kids would have three Christmases because all the parents need a bite at that apple. And it's too ridiculous and it spoils the children rotten. So we have to have it here, which means I got to cook everything. And it's a gigantic meal. So yeah, there's a lot that goes into it, but that's all. It sounds onerous, but it's all joyful. It's all very nice. Are you, are you making a roast beast? This is, of course, my the dish that I always yearned for because of the how the Grinch stole Christmas was that roast beast. This is the menu. The nice slices, like the very even slices. I had to buy an electric uh, cutter because I make a beef Wellington every year. Two of them, in fact, because there's a lot of people that eat it. And you can't cut the thing falls apart on you. It's just puff pastry falls apart on you with a regular knife. So we had to buy an electric carving 
knife to actually now why doesn't it fall apart with an electric carving knife electric carving knives are just miracles they're amazing they cut through Uh everything like butter so yes two giant beef wellingtons a big candied salad uh duchess potatoes making a focaccia kind of tomato feta casserole thing for breakfast and a big uh, charcuterie board for lunch so doesn't sound like a lot but a lot of prep goes into it and how and how many sounds like a lot (laughs) <laughs> and your and 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 your sons will be eating uh, uh, cereal and plain yes, pasta. Right. Yeah, they noodles. don't touch any of that. Still nuggets. Noodles. <laughs> I get some nuggets. Um, yeah, they eat ham, and we're having ham for Christmas Eve. So this is how okay. Christmassy we get in this house. This There's is just to point out shellfish and bacon. Yes. It's yeah, it's, it's, yes. it's not a kosher yes. household. It's not. That's that's that that goes without saying. Uh, uh, Christine, um, you had Christmas plans that seem to have been interrupted by by Omicron. Yeah, we had the the family. We always share Christmas day, sort of late afternoon, big meal. We all pitch in and cook together. It's actually really fun. It's become a tradition in the last 10 years. Um, they have a they have a covid case in their household, so they have canceled Christmas dinner, which is understandable, but sad. So we rebooted. I'm going to make a big beef stew for the for some of us uh, here. And then we're going to teach uh, with my neighbors and their kids. We're all getting together in the evening for desserts and caroling and um, also to teach all the teenagers how to play poker. So this is our this is going to be our Christmas day. And we've got the chips. We got a whole we're going to set it all up and they're going to learn how to play poker. What contrast? between uh, <laughs> yeah, the wholesomeness of caroling and the generosity. Exactly. exactly. And I'm making a ton of cookie. There's like so much cookie baking going on today. What what, what what poker games are you going to going to teach? I'm leaving I it up my kids to... how to play poker. And so I, I'm, I'm open to suggestions. It's whatever you think. There used I mean... to be a bunch of poker games that people would play and they've all become Hold'em. Yeah. Well, yeah, hold them. Hold them is the tournament game. Like hold them right. is and hold them is in some ways the the ideal uh, poker game, uh, in, especially in, there, for new new learners. There's beginners, five yeah. cards or seven cards. There's there's Omaha, which is another form of Hold'em. I grew um, up playing stud, but like I don't remember. Yeah, stud. I don't, well, I well, Omaha, remember how to well, play that. Hold'em is is just a, a version of is a version of stud. It's just it's 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 just a slightly more interesting version of stud. Definitely play high low, and if yeah. you're going to play high low. The low hand has to be. This is very important. Six, four, three, two, one. Not five. Not not a straight five to the ace. If it's a straight, it's always a straight. Right. This is that you fights. People shoot each other <laughs> over this. So you got to establish that at the very beginning that the I lowest hand game. is in fact the worst possible hand, which is six, four, three, two, one. The worst possible hand mm-hmm. in, in, in poker. Um, my kids love playing poker, but it, it got worse at some point because once they realized that it really we weren't really playing with money you know the the incentive not to sort of follow the logic which is don't stay in when you have a bad hand and stuff of course is completely shot so then then it just becomes a game of luck you know there's no bluffing there's no strategy there's nothing if you just stay in you know just to see who who ends up with the best hand you know yeah, we're trying to figure out what the what the chips are going to represent. Um, yeah. We we thought about doing it with cookies, but that that could become kind of you know someone's going to go into sugar yeah, shock if exactly. we do that. So yeah, yeah. but we're going to try yeah. to make. We might end up. But at the beginning, for if you're teaching, if you're teaching, then don't then 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 in the early going, it's actually very easy to say no no no. What you want to do is accumulate. Right coins you don't want to mm-hmm. like you know and so don't don't give them away to go easy. all in <laughs> yeah i say it's call fun. them vaccine boosts <laughs> there, you go. there we go everybody <laughs> okay. wants one of those 
Okay. Abe, what are you doing over the next couple of days? So on Christmas day or in the evening of Christmas day, um, I'll be with my sister and brother-in-law. We're going to get Chinese food and watch a movie. Don't know what movie yet. Mm -hmm. I just watched this morning, oddly enough, something I'd meant to watch last year, even bought it and then didn't in that weird way. You don't like, I didn't want to at the time, but it, it was just on HBO. So I started watching it. The personal history of David Copperfield, this movie by, um, the guy who did Veep and the Death of Stalin, uh, Armando Iannucci, which is a uh, very abbreviated adaptation of David Copperfield. Um, and it's great. It's delightful beyond beyond belief. Um, and interesting because um, it's, uh, it's, it's multiculturally cast. Dave, David Copperfield is played by the Indian British actor Dev Patel. And there are various other... And, and, and it is it works perfectly well because the whole thing is cast as a theatrical performance in which David or Dickens is actually kind of reciting his novel, which is something that Dickens did. Dickens would perform his works on stage. And so therefore, all, everything is an imagining of his. And it makes perfect sense that he could put anybody in any part. You know what I mean? It's sort of so it, 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 it wears very, very lightly. And um, uh, I think I it's yeah, it's, it's kind of it's notable generally how well Dickens uh, lends itself to more modern media generally. Right. Right. Yeah. Movies you can do, and, yeah. and anything cinematic and, yeah. and uh, shows. Yeah. It's, yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, the astonishing thing about A Christmas Carol, if you read A Christmas Carol, is that um, it anticipated it is written in a style of cinematic storytelling, even though it was written in 1843. Like he actually saw, he writes as though in the course of the, of the course of the, the journeys with the ghosts, uh, there is a camera eye uh, sort of zooms over the zooms over the landscape uh, arrives places out of focus, comes into focus. It's really, it's like special startling. effects. Yeah. I, I I was struck by yeah. the same thing when yeah. I when I read it a few yeah. years ago. Yeah, startling how modern a vision it is, and also because you know he was, you know, this man of almost sort of fantastic. Yeah, I mean, I, there aren't very many bad Dickens adaptations. Um, it's kind of amazing how how wonderfully well, and there are like ten versions of David Copperfield. There's an early one with. Freddie Bartholomew and, and W.C. Fields as Mr. Micawber and Basil Rathbone as Mr. Murdstone, his tormenting stepfather, um, that is just glorious. And this is glorious. And there's, there was a, a BBC version that was glorious. And there's, of course, Oliver. There's Oliver Twist, which is a fantastic movie with Alec Guinness and Oliver the Musical, which is dazzlingly good if you've never seen it. That is a fantastic movie to watch with your family. The choreography stands at these num couple of these numbers, the consider yourself number and stuff like it, just eye-poppingly amazing, even now, 50 years after it came it's, out. It's amazing because he was a he was a universe creator. And yeah. so if you if you accept the universe, if you recreate the universe, you're already in pretty good shape. Yeah. And it was, and it's a it's a it's a right. I mean, it is in this sense, it's a little like what JK Rowling did with it's a it's it is the universe of 19th century England. And it is London, mostly London, realistically, you know, captured 
except it's the world within the world, right? There's it's it's go you go through a doorway and you're in a slightly much more melodramatic, much more frightening, much more elemental London, and then of course more satisfying as well. I'm reading Oliver Twist yeah. to my uh, um my seven year old, uh-huh. <laughs> which is a bit of a struggle. Yeah, uh, <laughs> he's, yeah. he's a he's a long he's a long winded writer. Uh, yes. incredibly incredibly gifted um describe yes. d- like you would write a fly landed on his soup yeah. and dickens writes owing to a particularly boisterous insect his meal yeah. met an yes. untimely termination like it's yes. the sort of thing that like just kind of uh it's 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 a struggle i'm just hoping that my kid picks up some yeah. of this language uh but uh it, yeah it's very very uh, the descriptions are um sardonic in a way that we've we've sort of lost i mean he was maybe the greatest of all English pro stylists. I mean, nobody, and you know, he was a freakish intelligence as a writer. You know, he sort of was came, he was sort of fully formed as a writer at the age of 21 or 22 and wrote a prose that no one has ever really matched. And it's not clear that he was all that particularly well-educated. He's got a quality like Shakespeare in that regard and that you can't quite figure out how he managed to obtain this utter command over this incredibly vast language, you know, uh, vocabulary without kind of any kind of formal um, education. And then, you know, his own vision, his own creative imagination is one thing, but this, the gorgeousness of this uh, prose is just sort of amazing. And if you, if you find the BBC's eight hour version, I mean, it's actually the Royal Shakespeare company's eight hour version of Nicholas Nickleby, which is, uh, you know, basically a story of a theatrical troupe, uh, was maybe, maybe the greatest stage production of our time. And it was taped for television and, uh, it's eight hours long because so much of what you hear and see is, is, stuff from the book is sort of narration is, is Dickens own voice from the book. And you just can't believe how beautiful it is. That is, that is well worth uh, tracking down Roger Reese and the Trevor Nunn production of Nicholas Nickleby. Anyway, I didn't even know we were going here, but, uh, but, uh, but I do recommend the personal history of David Copperfield. Um, by the way, we could just sort of ask, there are, you know, 22 versions of A Christmas Carol. Does A lot of people are now saying that their favorite version of Christmas Carol is the Muppet Christmas Carol with Michael Caine as Scrooge. Uh, anybody have any uh, Christmas Carol favorites? I just, you know, off off topic, though, I just rediscovered the um, Disney adaptation of Oliver Twist, which is just like Oliver, I think it's called. Oliver and, and Company? The- Oliver and Company, thank you. I saw that in the theaters when I was a little one, and I I had forgotten it, and it just kind of came across my transom with Billy Joel. With the, yeah, Billy like Joel wrote the, songs. wrote the songs. He wrote the songs. Wrote the yeah. songs. It's, that's really fantastic. It's, it's forgotten. That was one, like it it's totally forgotten, and it was considered a misfire. And it yeah, like it's the only thing Billy Joel ever wrote for the for the movies, and the animation isn't very good. It was like just before they reconstituted Disney's animation with the Little Mermaid. Um, so it's the sort of thing like they could actually literally remake, you know what I mean? Like, um, uh, and, and improve with the Billy Joel score. But anybody else have a, have a Christmas Carol? I just, the old one with uh, Alistair Sim. Alistair Sim. Yeah. yeah. I mean, yeah. the old one, there's, yeah. I think there's many old ones, but that's, that's, that's always the one that, that feels the iconic in, in my mind. Yeah. Uh, George C. Scott. Uh, did one for television, I think, in 1984. 
I think that's probably the best. I mean, George C. Scott's performance is just Titanic uh, in it, uh, as he was capable of being Titanic. But again, that's something you just, you can't ruin a Christmas Carol. It's like, you By the can't way, make a bad version of a like Christmas Bill, Carol. Bill Murray's Scrooge is yeah. a version of it, and it still yeah. works. Yeah. I, was, I was about to say, the the whole three ghosts of the, the yeah. past, present, that has been repurposed so many ways at, yeah. at this point. It's so many times, yeah. you know, he, he among the extraordinary things about Dickens is he had this way of inventing these mechanisms that were just so essential that yeah. became so essential to storytelling yeah that have you know been superseded really yeah i just don't know that you know stories are like story proof you know it's it's very weird that you know adaptation proof or not ad- and the opposite like you just can't go wrong it's like do a christmas carol and you can't go wrong basically that's amazing you know it's 180 years old um Anyway, all right. So, uh, having having gone through this uh, this beautiful reverie, um, let's let's get down to brass tacks. We were having an argument offline a little bit. Uh, piece of news um, uh, that came out uh, last night on the 20, night of the twenty third that uh, that's uh, unnerving but hard to interpret, which is that um, Saudi Arabia is apparently going to allow in three Iranian diplomats now. Why would that be unnerving? Who diplomats? Whatever. Um, of course, the Saudis and the Iranians have been uh, uh, locked in a cold war that sometimes gets a little hot. Pretty much for forty years. I mean, uh, Iranian-backed, uh, you know, sort of. Re- the Iranians would like control of Mecca. Uh, the Shiites would like control of the holy sites. Um, Iran doesn't want to give up that. Uh, and when when Iran started really getting serious about a nuclear weapon, and the United States was so pusillanimous in response to Iran's nuclear ambitions, that began sort of inaugurated this amazing sort of revolution in Middle Eastern foreign policy and international diplomacy, in which the Saudis uh, ended up making these sort of overture or have developing this relationship with with Israel, which it had been, you know, committed uh, whose to whose destruction it had been committed and had spent billions upon billions of dollars toward its destruction over the course of like 50, 60 years. Um, and uh, in part because they shared this common enemy, the fear that, you know, the Saudis would use, uh, the Iranians would use nukes against the Saudis, the Iranians would use nukes against Israel. And then this whole question of whether or not, see if the, if the Iranians were going to proliferate, then the Saudis were going to then have to respond with a, with a nuke. And then we were going to have a, a, a nuclearized Middle East, which is, you know, just great. That would be just, just fantastic, right? I mean, that would be an amazing experience. Um, Noah, you were the one who got you you got freaked out about this, and then we we sort of had a, a, a disputation about about its larger meaning. Yeah, I, I think it's concerning. Um, <clears throat> insofar as it, along with something else, signals uh, perhaps a willingness on the part of Riyadh to fall out of the Western orbit, which is deleterious to American national interest, point blank. Um, yeah, this is probably not the world's biggest deal to some thaw in diplomatic relations between Iran and Saudi Arabia, although I'm not sure whether it holds and anything that energizes the Wahhabists inside Saudi Arabia is something to be very concerned about. And a thaw with a, a Shiite nation would most certainly do that. Um, 
but also it comes in concert with some revelations that uh, Saudi Arabia had been developing missiles with the assistance of the Chinese. And I'm not sure whether that's material, financial, or otherwise, but it is nevertheless uh, support um, in a way that should also be concerning to the West, in part because uh, Riyadh knows that there's a powerful contingent in uh, in the orbit of this administration that wants to see Saudi Arabia completely cut off. And when Joe Biden took office in January, he temporarily halted arms exports to Saudi Arabia, uh, reversed that course over the uh, over the course of this year, um, to the profound consternation of the uh, foreign policy uh, left in this country. And um, they, they, they can see the writing on the wall that there is a particular movement in this country that does not like Saudi Arabia and their support for Saudi Arabia and would like to cut them off entirely. And there's three years left in this administration. Who knows where that's gonna go? So yeah, I think all this is, is concerning. It's not hair on fire, maybe. Um, I, re I reacted to it with some real terror uh, last night, but upon reflection, it's not the end of the world. Nevertheless, it could signal some developments in the very near term that would be very damaging to Western interests. Yeah, Maybe I mean, I, I, I think it's, I'm, I'm essentially in agreement. I think it is cause for concern. The, the one thing about the, the Chinese helping the, the, the Saudis with the ballistic missiles is that when I read that, my thinking was that, well, that, that is a project um, aimed aggressively at Iran. Um, because Iran has been building up. And in 2019, uh, Iran attacked, well, it's widely believed Iran attacked, is responsible for a, a massive attack on Saudi oil fields. Um, so, you know, I think it's a, a, sort of something to, to keep, keep our eyes on, but uh, again, not necessarily the end of the world. Saudi Arabia is really quite invested in, in um, it's this, this new road with Israel. I mean, even even though it's not formally part of the Abraham Accords, um, it is it is it has been a big behind the scenes player uh, in terms of uh, the Emirates uh, and, and advising and, and giving its consent um, for for the for the Emirates um, cooperation with Israel. Yeah. You know, if you had told me when I was in college uh, working with my thesis advisor, Daniel Pipes, on the Saudi U.S. relationship in the late 70s, early 80s, um, that 40 years hence, I would be saying that uh, the behavior of uh, dem Democrats in the United States uh, toward, uh, toward Saudi Arabia um, was uh, crazy because it was too hostile, I would have thought that you were insane. Um, and in fact, the entire effort to, um, to uh, uh, upend the US-Saudi relationship over the disgusting murder of uh, Jamal uh, Khashoggi in the uh, in the Turkish uh, consulate um, which is a horrifying event and it does appear that Mohammed bin Salman the effective ruler of Saudi Arabia was directly involved in it and it's just an absolutely terrible horrible thing uh, but that America's geopolitical position in relation to the most important uh, engine of, uh, of economic activity uh, in the world and geopolitical relationships that involve the future of mankind, humanity, Israel, nuclear weapons and everything should be materially affected by the killing of one person, however unjust and egregious. Um, seems to me to be crazy, and I can even give you a reason why. Because I, you know, we 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 right now have a, a potential genocide going on uh, inside China toward an entire people, 
And I, I don't hear anybody saying our entire relationship with China needs to be, you know, I, I mean, anybody saying we need to cut off all of our relations with China over the Uyghurs, even though that is a much more defensible position than that our relation with, you know, Saudi Arabia needs to be completely interrupted because of the killing of one person. Like, so the, the, and that is, that is very much a democratic party position, not a Republican party position. I'm not defending the murder of Jamal Khashoggi. I'm just saying that, you know, this is the classic, you know, if you're going to be out in the world, you have to deal with bad actors or complicated actors or people who do not operate on the basis of your morality. And to the extent possible, we should be promoting every idea that we promote about human rights, liberty, free speech, and uh, and all of that. But at the same time, this is where we can't be the world's policemen. We're not going to go around and arrest Mohammed bin Salman for the murder of Jamal Khashoggi. And even, even more importantly, we can't allow our relationship with Saudi Arabia in the middle of this incredible struggle with Iran to be materially compromised by this. And yet there are these people, as Noah says, who sort of want to do that, number one. And also, number two, it's very convenient because they are still obsessed and consumed with the idea that we can find some kind of rapprochement with Iran. And the only way we can find a rapprochement with Iran is to distance ourselves from Saudi Arabia. The very fact of distancing us from Saudi Arabia during the Obama administration is what led Mohammed bin Salman and others to the idea that they needed to look a different way in a very radical fashion toward Israel or toward non-American alliances because they were being sold out against, uh, you know, that that America was essentially getting complicit in the ultimate development of an Iranian nuclear weapon, which is the one thing Saudi Arabia itself needs to make sure doesn't happen to this protect sort of, its regime. And it's, you're sort of getting into the paradox of <clears throat> what human rights as an instrumental tool of foreign policy is, uh, is that it, it can be quite valuable uh, as an instrument of soft power, but a, a foreign policy that is dedicated purely to the promotion of human rights would destroy the country that is dedicated to it. it you, you must engage in some hypocrisy uh, in order to have an effective foreign policy while wielding this particular cudgel. Because otherwise, you wouldn't have a foreign policy at all. Because every human, every nation in the world is in some way viola a violator of this kind of pure understanding of of human rights. So you have to pick and choose and embrace a certain amount of hypocrisy if you want to be an effective geostrategic actor on the world stage. Uh, and you know, the the purest of pure among us don't quite understand the that level of statecraft. Well, I mean, there aren't that many, to, to be honest, right? Like, everybody's a hypocrite in this regard. That's why I brought up China and the Uyghurs or something. But you can find it in almost any circumstance that people who are going absolutely, you know, uh, who who said, you know, sort of David Ignatius or, you know, because he knew Jamal Khashoggi or whatever, you know, saying, oh, we must uh, blah, blah, blah. You know, I don't remember hearing him say we shouldn't engage with Cuba. Like, I don't remember hearing him Forget say- Cuba. These are the these are the same people who want to see um, a new a new deal with Iran. Yeah, where, precisely. Where, right. where, where where gays are hung from cranes, where political prisoners are routinely killed. So yeah, 
Yeah, we should so- we should mention, by the way, that the, the Biden administration just signed uh, this bill yesterday very quietly. It, I mean, it, it, it's obviously made news because uh, banning the import of goods that are made by Uyghurs in, in these slave labor camps that, that the Chinese have constructed right. that we have known about for some time. Right. Um, it was interesting to me that he didn't use that as an opportunity to tout exactly what you were saying. No, like here we care about human rights. Look, we care about this. It, it was all done, you know, and there was some tension well, they about this bill getting passed. They didn't, even, they right? didn't want they did not want the bill. Right. The Biden administration didn't. This was Marco Rubio's bill, and they did not want the bill to pass. They did not want to. And again, in terms of statecraft, um, you can understand why you can understand that this limits a certain amount of freedom of movement if you're and particularly if you're dealing with authoritarian or totalitarian governments to go and say look we want to but you know we have this weird system where these guys over here do things and you know they 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 hamstring us and then the chinese are like well you know how can we trust you that your congress isn't going to go and do terrible things this is always why every secretary of state they, People in administrations don't want Congress interfering with the making of foreign policy to the extent possible because they want to be able to sit at a table and have the freest negotiating powers that they can possibly have, which is one of the reasons that we need Congress to get involved a little bit because then they get clientitis and they and they start negotiating with themselves to make the 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 other players you know, to say, well, they'll never accept this. So we should go to this provision next. Honestly, the, the opposition to this particular bill came from domestic corporate interests um, with, who said very plainly that it was so broadly written that it would capture goods that maybe weren't made with slave labor. And how are well, we supposed to know? They don't so want to know is the problem. They exactly. don't want to know. Precisely. Exactly. Right. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Anyway, it's an interesting it's an interesting thing to watch, but it just one of the conditions here is that um, is that we have, on the one hand, a very arch, uh, you know, self righteous uh, presentation of facts against Saudi Arabia by people who, as as Abe says, seem to be entirely comfortable turning a blind eye or 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 whatever, or saying there are things more important than X in dealing with Iran's, you know, nightmarish human rights record uh, because there's something they want from Iran. And so to be honest, like there's something that people who support Israel want from Saudi Arabia. Um, you know, they, they want, they would like to see this relationship bl- blossom and bear fruit and create an entirely new set of circumstances uh, for you know, a greater degree of liberalization uh, in the Middle East, which is happening at a very rapid clip. I mean, it's not democracy, and it's not, but it's something, um, and it makes places that are not hospitable toward toward Americans hospitable toward Americans, not hospitable toward Jews, hospitable toward Jews. And this is a, this is a, you know, a, in some ways a huge advance. Uh, you know, the the most significant departure from the status quo on earth since the fall of the Berlin Wall. I mean, and and and, and the idea that we would somehow like poo-poo that or think it's not as important as other things is kind of bizarre and just seems again like a kind of churlish way of, you know, it's like if 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 uh and it all happened because of Obama. That's of course the great joke, right? It all happened because Obama tilted toward Iran and the Saudis went, uh-oh, um we may not really have a stable 
alliance here that isn't going to turn on our interests. We better find some other way of going through this. And wow, the Israelis seem incredibly efficient at preventing the Iranians from going nuclear, way more efficient than any ludicrous negotiations and briberies that Obama wants. So um, look, it's the 24th uh, of December as I'm speaking to you. So uh, I've been telling you for a month to get David Bonson's There's No Free Lunch, 250 Economic Truths as a stocking stuff for Christmas present. And we're coming up hard on the deadline for that. So I'm probably going to assume that you're not hearing this in time to get to a Barnes and Noble and buy the hard copy, but you can always gift it on Amazon. You can always gift it on barnesandnoble.com as a Christmas present, as a stocking stuffer, a virtual stocking stuffer, a brilliant exploration of the economic ideas that, 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 that sort of govern human or sort of are informed by human action uh, and the connections between those uh, human flourishing and uh, political liberty. Um, that is what David does in this book, 250, ex- 250 ideas explored with great quotations and uh, pithy summaries, uh, like a daily devotional. It's great. Get it for your friends. Get it for your family. Get it virtually. Get it before midnight tonight. <laughs> or, you know, tomorrow morning, if someone's coming over later in the morning and you need to do something, you know, fast because you haven't done it, that's right there. It's a fantastic thing. David Bonson, B-A-H-N-S-E-N of the Bonson Group, the antidote to the intellectual spaghetti of the financial services and management uh, industry. Uh, So there's a pretty amazing piece in Vanity Fair yesterday, unbelievably detailed. Uh, Boy, did Biden step in it big time. I, I mean, Biden has summoned upon himself something Uh, He awakened a beast. He did by responding to you, Michel Cinder, at the end of that speech on Tuesday, was it? By saying, what do you mean we were slow to respond on testing? On COVID, home COVID testing. We weren't. How dare you? You know, he didn't say look fat, but he could have said look fat. You know, uh, how dare you? And um, and uh, now just like everyone is coming out of the woodwork to say, how what are you saying We've been screaming for 18 months about home testing, and it's your administration, the bureaucrats who work for you, who are preventing this from happening. And this Vanity Fair piece, just like, I mean, I mean he does this. He has this very Trumpian trait where he does just make stuff up in the moment because he wishes that were the case. Like he just says things. Like he just made up a quote from Joe Manchin the other day, a very damning quote that if Joe Manchin had actually said it, would have been really bad. But he didn't say it. He didn't say anything close to it. It just he just decided he was going to attribute yeah, a false quote. To it was the dog face pony soldier. No, it wasn't. Him. It, well, what did he wait? What did what did what, what was the it, what was the, the gist of it? I'm paraphrasing because I don't remember the exact quote, but the gist of it was that Joe Manchin had told uh, the assembled members of the Democratic caucus that he had misled them. He said, I'm I misled you or something along those lines about the nature of his opposition to the Build Back Better bill. When he never said that, he has been saying the exact same thing in the exact same way for seven straight months to anybody willing to listen. Well, the interesting thing about this uh, Vanity Fair piece is that it stops the cycle that a lot of us have been 
noticing and talking about since Biden took office, which is when he, as you say, John, he just makes something up or says something that isn't true or, or stretches the truth or makes a claim about his administration that's that's factually incorrect. And then Jen Psaki or other members of his press team try to do cover, uh, sort of a cleanup, right? They correct what he said. They said he meant this. She did this four days after they had this meeting, according to the Vanity Fair piece. She did cleanup. She was mocking when the press asked about tests. She said, oh, what are we going to send these to every American? Give me a break. I mean, this is her, you know, this is the yes queen. She's always getting tweeted at by the left. But that's what that's what's broken down now, because Americans are looking at this and saying, well, wait a minute. You told us you mocked this, but we need this now. He's been burned. I mean, they've been burned, rather. See, all the 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 members of the press that used to cover for him every time he made this stuff up, they've been burned again and again, and he's lost them. They were burned on Afghanistan when he when he came out and said everything's great and then everything was disastrous. Burned on they were burned on Build Back Better when they were talking it all up and and it it it, it never happened. Inflation, um, inflation, in, inflation, as well. it goes on and on. And so they're not they're not gonna put themselves on the line anymore for this garbage. It's a really interesting twist. I I mean, this piece in Vanity Fair is so detailed that it, it I think it's pretty clear that it must have been in the works or some ver I mean it's 3 or 4000 words long it wasn't it, it's and very very densely reported so it might have been something that they had in the hopper for later on that they repurposed you know immediately to get it out um because it is a history dating back to March of 2020 and the fact that the the federal health authorities I think at the CDC but it may be the FDA said you know uh what do you want? It, it's sort of like this great moment in um, in uh, The Odd Couple where uh, The Odd Couple begins with a poker game, speaking of Christine's poker game, the, the play of The Odd Couple. And uh, Murray, the cop, is dealing very, very, very slowly, you know, and, and, and Speed, a very uh, impatient player, is like, Murray, what do you want? You, should I give you a massage? You seem to be a little, uh, you, 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 is everything okay? I mean, I'm a little worried. He's like, and, and Murray says, what do you want, speed or accuracy? And basically that is what this CDC was like. We can't have, you know, what we need is accurate, very accurate tests. And very accurate tests must be grown in a lab and da 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 da. It's, you know, it takes 24 to 48 hours. And if you have a home test, It'll be fast, but it may not be accurate enough to provide the appropriate kind of data. And it was like, are you aware that there's a pandemic going on and that maybe, you know, false results are problematic? It's understandable that you can't just say it's the gold standard to go buy an antigen test or something like that, but it's better than nothing. Uh, it's way, and they were like, no, no, no. We know how to do things. We we have our way of doing things, and we're going to do it like that. And the interesting thing is that that attitude never shifted. Um, it is as though it is as though a kind of um, I don't know uh, cement set in, you know, to the you know they were they were encased in cement. And this crisis made it, they were unable to break out of the cement, the set of orthodoxies that they believed to say, we need to shift gears, right? I, and if we had, yeah, go I'm ahead. I'm going to bring an example of that to the, <clears throat> to, the, to the audience, because I got this 
as an example of what you're talking about, this, this, you know, attachment to defunct priors, I got this uh, alert late last night from the New Jersey Department of Health. Quote, this holiday, we want everyone to protect themselves against COVID-19. Remember to wear a mask, stay six feet apart, and get your booster. Stay home if you're sick, get tested before an event or gathering, especially if you have been exposed. Um, vaccination here is just kind of an afterthought. It's barely re referenced. Go get a booster. Yeah, whatever. But also wear a mask and socially distant distance for the foreseeable future in perpetuity. Um, it is. And, and, you know, Joe Biden can say it's not March of 2020 all he wants. But as long as the authorities are acting like it. It is. And, you know, they're shifting the rules about this, right? I mean, first of all, there was the six feet to three feet shift. Do you remember this? People fair. Oh, that was in schools. Yeah. I know. And the Here, teachers were going to try to prevent that. From no, but I'm bringing this right. up. I'm saying so. So at some point. But the only reason like, why they did that, they didn't do that for any medical reason, John. They did right. that because classrooms couldn't couldn't fill to capacity with I six am, feet distance. I am so all of a sudden of the science had to change. And we just got another, more of that, that last night, actually. I'm aware of that. That's why I wanted to bring this up, which is that. Uh, we have these circumstances under which a shift occurs and um, it doesn't, it's not, it's not supported by rigorous research, except to the extent that it would show that this, that the social distancing was itself nonsense. Maybe, it, maybe it only works at 12 feet. Then you're like, well, it can't be 12 feet. So it has to be six, but if it's six and not 12, it might as well be three or two. How do you come to three? You just divide it in half. What? What if it were 60 percent? Yeah. So it's two feet. I mean, this is all. And then they did this thing last night. Right. We've been hearing for the last couple of days, in part because of the overwhelming, increasingly overwhelming evidence that Omicron is a far less severe variant and is far less likely to get to make people very sick, particularly if they're vaccinated or double vaccinated or boosted or whatever. You can still get a breakthrough case, but it's a cold. That they are going to reduce the amount of quarantine or isolation time. Right. Originally, it was 14 days. Now it's 10. There's some thought Fauci already said that they were revisiting this, they, that they might move it to five. Right. Negative test. Five days, you're fine. Then they announce healthcare work. What what is the what what is the Christine? You have the it's healthcare workers. Healthcare workers, uh, basically anyone who's in. I think also like nursing homes. Anyone who helps others in a healthcare setting, they want to shift that because they're they don't have enough people to staff uh, services right. if they have. So as long as from the CDC, the CDC is quote that isolation time can be cut further if there are staffing shortages. Right. Exactly. So right. much science. Right. All the yeah. si can you Which just makes, feel the science? Right. Which and makes you feel no, the science. Right. So as long as you have a negative test, you're fine. Right. Okay. But that makes no sense because first of all, these are nursing home workers, right? Who is at the highest risk of dying from a from a, even a light case of COVID? Right. People who are in nursing, old people who are in nursing homes, as we know, except. 95% of them are fully vaccinated, according to what we read. I hope that's true. You never know if these stats are accurate or not. But it's like, well, you know, they got to be taken care of. So the, uh, the, the isolation time can be broken down from uh, 10 to five days. Why can't it just be the minute you have a negative test, you're done? What is the day time? 
because it's like, well, we don't know how long you're shedding virus or not shedding virus, but you don't know that five days means you're stopping shedding virus either. They're just making it up as they go along. And we're almost two years into this thing. And they're making these rules up as they go along because yes, they're right. People need to be taken care of in nursing homes. And what's more, if they're being taken care of in nursing homes and there's a lot of virus around, those people should probably wear masks while they're taking care of the patients in nursing homes. But they can't be left to, you know, to sit in their own feces if there aren't enough people to work. But if that's true in a nursing home, it should be true everywhere in the country. Like that's the worst possible place to say that it's okay. Yes. Yeah. But not just even particularly everywhere, everywhere on earth. Well, we have a lot of flight cancellations today and tomorrow because flight crews, uh, pilots and and flight attendants, there aren't enough of them because many of them are adhering to these uh, 2020 era early COVID quarantine rules because those haven't changed. Those have to change for the vaccinated. There's just no, we cannot get back to normal if they don't change. I believe that saying, so here's the thing, saying that if you test positive for COVID right now, which means you are 80 to 90% likely to have Omicron. So it is likely to be mild. Nonetheless, if you test positive, you should stay home and not try to infect other people. And if you, if you absolutely have to go out, you should wear a mask and socially distance, but not if you're exposed to somebody with Omicron and not if you don't have it, like that's, that's where this, that's where everything gets confused here. Okay. Like if you have it, try to keep away from people. If you don't have it, don't try to keep away from people because that doesn't make any sense. And then what's more, if you get it, so you get it. Are you double vaccinated and boosted? You're going to be fine. Um, These numbers out of South Africa and other places are really staggering. Like there's a number out of Louisiana. uh, There are like twice the number of COVID cases and a tenth the number of hospitalizations as there were in January of 2021. When there was, which was like, was that the third wave or the second? I can't even remember. But the point is like, the case number is like skyrocketing. And what's more, it's got to be way higher than even the case numbers we're seeing because people are testing at home positive and th- those aren't like getting registered, right? If you buy a home test and you test positive, that's not going into some statewide count. So probably many more people have it than we know. And the hospitalization numbers are a tenth of what they were 11 months ago, which is the evidence that this is, much more benign. I mean, and much more is even, it's like when they say, you know, you're at summer. I mean, it is like, you're really not at risk unless you're unvaccinated. And as Jared Post would say, if you're unvaccinated, it's like going out in the snow, you know, in 20 degrees. And, and if you get frostbite, it's on you. Like, don't blame me. Um, we're continuing with this oh my God, the hospitals are going to be overrun. And then when people actually ask people who run hospital systems, they're like, we're not being overrun. So, you know, none of this is making any logical sense. And the regime may collapse. Like, Noah, that's what I'm saying. Like, once Fauci says we've revisited the time frame and the isolation can go down from 10 days to five days, the rule is going to be you test, you, you, you get caught, you test positive, you have COVID. 
test negative and you're done with COVID. Like <laughs> that's it. Like there's no other way to handle it. And that of course then brings up the testing thing because you got to make tests available to people so that they can test negative. Well, you also just, have to get away from the asymptomatic testing. I that really, a lot of the, I, that is, that's the part that is worrying uh, me about school reopenings. I don't think, John, you want to hear this from half our audience wants to hear it. But the disincentives to getting a test now are outweigh the benefits. Um, if if you have to quarantine and self-isolate and miss work and miss school for a cold. You're not going to do it. You're just not going to do it. Well, I, okay. So I, if that's the case, then it's like classic, don't ask, don't tell, you know, whatever happens, happens, it'll spread or it won't spread. If you are in a slightly different relation to this and you want to test because you don't want to, whatever, at the very least, particularly if you're a rule follower, you shouldn't be punished for being a rule follower. So you follow the rules, you find out you have, you, you know, you have symptoms, you have symptoms, not I'm talking about asymptomatic But that's testing. why it's going to collapse. Because no, what you're because describing here is is the incentive to be hypocritical, quietly hypocritical, will soon become an incentive to be vocally hypocritical and then to be ostentatious and flamboyant with your disrespect and disregard for these regimes. And that's that's collapse. Well, especially because uh, if you test you're st and you're positive, you're then being punished for being a rule follower, because the only person, the only people that you're quarantining for are the ones that care so little they didn't even get vaccinated. But because there are breakthrough cases, which apparently are also very mild, I'm just saying, like, let's assume that all the good news about Omicron is really confirmed over the next week, okay? That, the, that, that it really does appear that as long as you got some vaccine in you, you're going to live through this just fine. My friend, called more, it, my friend called it diet COVID. <laughs> that's good it's like glock covid it's like the opposite of glock covid so um you're going to be fine what's more you know if you're double boosted and uh, if you're boosted a uh, double vaxxed and boosted and then you get this you might be like super immune i mean that could be like the ultimate in super immunity you've gotten it you've gotten vaccinated and you got this variant and so you're like man my i am like i can go anywhere and do anything i can lick people with covid i'll be fine right um, I don't know where it's going with this. The, the I'm saying if 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 the data all if it's all good in a week, then um, then the question is, can we actually have a realistic conversation in which we say, look, everybody's going to get it, so get it or don't get it. It's like the '60s. If you had a kid and you you had a kid with mumps, you had three other kids. You put your kids, the other kids, in the room with the kid with mumps, so they got mumps before they were three or four. And they got it and they therefore had the immunity to it and they were done with it, right? That was before there was the MMR. That's what people did. That's how people dealt with infectious disease because they knew that mumps is incredibly dangerous if you get it when you're an adult, but it is actually not dangerous if you get it as a kid. Um, basically, it may be that we want everybody to get Omicron. Uh, you can understand why it would be hard, even, even if you hate Fauci, you can understand why it'd be hard for public health officials to say it would be a good thing for you to contract this virus, all things being equal. Effectively, that will, that is probably where but, but we're going. But yeah, but they can't say that, like you say, and everybody is getting it. It seems like it's difficult to not get it. 
unless you really are isolating yourself from the rest of civilization. It just stepping outside, you contract this thing, no matter what your vaccination status, based on what, what we're seeing in the news and the anecdotal reports of, you know, the people who are so vaccinated, they like lie and get a fourth boost. And then they still contract this thing. You're going to get it no matter what. So in a couple of weeks time, we're going to be living in a, in a world in which most of those people, most people have gotten this or know somebody who's gotten it or, or had a scare, if not a positive test. And the public health apparatus will still be locked into this March 2020 mentality. Who's listening to that anymore? Well, they are. People are unfortunately still listening to it. And this is why I think the shift has to be pretty dramatic. If, if, as you say, John, the data show that this is a very mild strain for the vaccinated. And that's why the Jared Polis thing still stands out as an exception to the rule on the left in particular about the messaging, because parents are still freaking. The fear is still being fed because they cannot appeal to an authority figure who will say you're overreacting. Right. Because Biden hasn't said it. Fauci hasn't said it. All the people they've been listening to and lighting candles to for the last two years hasn't said it yet. Josh Kroshauer had a, a very astute anecdotal observation the other day that I thought he, he found great meaning in it. And I think it really was profound that in Washington, D.C., he had never seen more masks outside than today. But he had never seen fewer masks inside than he had today. So if you're terrified of COVID, you're not going inside anywhere. And you're masking outside. But most people who go inside don't care anymore. <laughs> they, they're unmasked and they're good and they're, per, they're, they're happy with their status. Or, and so or are, those, are those people that people are walking outside with masks have Omicron? That is the other possibility. They're walking around. They have Omicron. They're trying not to spread it and they're not going inside. But they're outside. And so they're they're taking a minor precaution. That's the logic of that which is don't go inside because you might spread it. But as long as you're outside and then you put on a mask, to, we don't even I know. I think Look, you can safely bet that a few of those people who don't give a hoot about this and are going inside unmasked amid a, a, the, the, in a city that has the worst Omicron spike in the country probably have it and don't care. I, I understand that, but we're not. If you want to say there's going to be a lot of, you know, anti, you know, like antinomianism and refusal to follow the rules, that's fine. The question then, we're still talking about what to do with the people who do follow the rules. And there are a lot of them. And the rules are 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 un are unfollowable. The will will be unfollowable. The question is, and they're already saying they're unfollowable because they're creating a crisis in nursing homes and healthcare situations. And they will create a crisis in schooling in a week and a half when when everybody goes back to school. And so something's got to give. Like I say, you can't say that it's okay to test negative and then go back and not to end your isolation solely on the basis of a negative test. uh, Because you work in a nursing home, but not because you work at a Walmart like that doesn't make any sense. It doesn't make any sense. You're much more you're endangering people much worse at a nursing home than you are at a Walmart. Anyway, with that, let me just say that as you are wrapping your presents and wassailing and singing carols, and that's the other thing, I I love uh, singing carols and and caroling and all of that, even though, of course, I don't celebrate the holiday. Please think about commentary in your end of your giving. There's another week. We really rely on our donors to help us close our deficit. I've said this before, we are a very lean organization, nonprofit, 501c3, all donations are tax deductible. There are eight of us 
in total working at commentary we produce the magazine we produce the website and we 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 send this podcast out to you for free every day five days a week we need your help please go to www.commentary.org slash donate to help uh we would be immensely grateful and uh please have a wonderful christmas uh and uh and enjoy the blessings of 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 the day for abe christina no i'm john von horitz keep the candle burning